Let's continue standing and we will read Acts 5 today as we prepare to move to the next chapter. But as you turn in your Bible, look back just a couple of verses. I'm going to begin in verse 36 of chapter 4. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds, and brought only a part of it, and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit, and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, and Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord multitudes of both men and women, so that even they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came to them and said, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. And the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him in his right hand as leader and savior 
to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God gave, or to whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you're about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or, for if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. This is God's word. Let us pray together. Lord, we do pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that you would cause us to see the glory in your word that every word of your, every promise of your word, every, every word in your word, Lord, never fails, that your word never passes away, that your truth remains. And I pray that your truth would pierce our hearts today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Please be seated. And again, thank you for these long readings. I know it's a time to stand, a long time. Um, I do want to just say a word of thanks uh, before I begin for the support uh, uh, yesterday in the walk. And as you know, it really wasn't anything that I did that got me in second, but it really was Glenn who uh, put the pressure on you all. Um, But I do want to thank one particular person, uh, Jacob, and I didn't tell him I was going to call him out this morning, but Jacob, I want to thank you for the gift that you gave, because I think it was a real example, your generosity and uh, just like we read about Barnabas this morning, who gave and was generous, and it was an example and encouragement to all, your generosity was an example and encouragement to everyone here today. So thank you for your gift to the Walk for Life. Well, that's, that's where we had to begin. We had to go back and read about Barnabas because I didn't cover that last week, if you remember, um, because it's so tied, uh, tied so closely to this story, that Barnabas was set, introduced here by Luke um, for what he did, but also Barnabas is going to become a leader, one that's an example to the church, one that the church needs to know about, one that you and I need to know about. This man whose name was Joseph from Cyprus, a Levite, who came and out of generosity sold whatever property he had and came and laid, it says, the whole amount at the feet of the disciples. Now, we don't have a lot of details about this. We don't know exactly what was said. Um, but we know that he is, is mentioned here as an example. Um, he chose to give the full amount. He didn't hold anything back. And we know that he did this willingly, not under compulsion. And we know this because of what Peter would later say to Ananias and Sapphira when he questioned them about their gift. Wasn't this property yours to keep or to sell? And after you sold it, wasn't the money at your disposal to give it all or keep it? So we don't know exactly what words were spoken, but we know one thing's for certain, that Ananias and Sapphira 
at least tried to give with the appearance of giving all, but they didn't. And so Barnabas is given as an example of what to do, and now we see Ananias and Sapphira, an example of what not to do. The, real, the reality of generosity is it really does become an encouragement to other believers, not just with money, but with our time, with our lives, and the way that we give, we live as giving people, it encourages other people to give. And you've no, no doubt seen this in your own life. Either you've been encouraged by someone else's generosity, or uh, you've seen someone encouraged by your generosity, that they go and they do something likewise. But in the same sense, if someone's ever been generous to you, and generous, by generous I mean they've done something selfless, that, you, that appears to be out of no interest for themselves, but only maybe for your interest or for someone else, and then you later find out that their motive was really their self, that they really did it for their own good, for their own benefit, for their own gain, it kind of undoes that generosity, doesn't it? And in the church, not only does it undo the generosity, but it actually kind of defames the name of Christ because it becomes a hypocrisy. It's a dishonest. And that's exactly what we see with Ananias and Sapphira that they gave with mixed motives. They tried to deceive God. If you see in verse 4, Peter says to them, You have lied not to man, but to God. Well, in reality, we, we can't deceive God. God knows everything. But this is what... Ananias and Sapphira tried to do. They wanted to appear like Barnabas with the accolades and gain what, what, what had been given to him in some regard. We're not given those details, but without the cost of actually giving the whole amount. And all that they needed to do, Peter calls them out on this, was, hey, it was at your disposal. All you had to do was be honest and just say, you know, this isn't the whole amount, but this is what the Lord has led us to give, and just give that amount. But they didn't. They were deceitful. You know, you and I may think in the same way, this kind of t- be tempted in the same way to, to do these kinds of things. You know, will anyone ever know? Will it really hurt anyone? When the reality is when we do things hypocritically and they do come out, they do hurt people. But even if no one ever knows, it hurts you. And even above that, it breaks God's heart because we're not living honestly. So often Satan can lead us astray with such temptations. Uh, you know, we call it a white lie, something that doesn't seem quite so disastrous, that's untrue, or a secret sin. Or maybe it's a sense of justice. You know, you work for a company that's got a lot of money and people are, uh, executives are getting paid a lot, and so you take or you steal, whether it's property or time or whatever, because you think they've got so much money. Or you may think this with the government when it comes tax time. Today's April 15th, Right. And you think, oh, the government's so corrupt, and you're wrong, and and you lie in your taxes. But none of these things are what they appear. Even if we get away with it, it damages our own hearts and lives, and God sees and knows all. And we see this in the life of Ananias and Sapphira. We see that they did it with full knowledge of what they did. Verse 2, Peter says they were in it together. Sapphira knew what Ananias was doing. In other words, this was not just hypocrisy, this was also conspiracy. They colluded together, they knew they were guilty before they did it, so there's no room for anyone to read this story and say, oh, it was in ignorance that they did this. They were guilty before, they knew they were guilty before they did it. It's interesting, the word here in the ESV, it's kept back in verse 2, 
is a, a unique word in, in Greek in the New Testament. It's used only here and one other place in the Septuagint. The Septuagint was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. So this would have been their Bible in this time. So this, this would have been, you know, this one word was only in one other place. And so Luke is drawing a parallel between these two events. And that was the story in Joshua 7 of Achan. And if you remember the story of Achan... God had, they had just come into the promised land. God's given them orders to come in and to, to cleanse the land. And one of the things that was part of the deal was when they collected spoil, it wasn't to be taken for themselves, but it was to be given for everyone. But Achan saw something that caught his eye. And he thought to himself, oh, what will this hurt, this small thing? And he took it and he buried it in, uh, in his tent to hide it. And suddenly the army of Israel starts losing. And Joshua comes to God and says, why are we losing? And God says, well, because there's sin in the camp. And through a series of events led by God, they find out Achan is the guilty party. And immediately he was stoned in judgment for his sin. Well, much like the people of God in the nation of Israel coming into the promised land, just beginning, just beginning to live out as a covenant people of God, God used Achan and judged him justly to be an example for the people. And even so, God is doing that now through Ananias and Sapphira to show that he is a holy God and he's serious about sin. We already mentioned that Satan was a part of this, and Peter calls this out in verse 3. He attributes this tactic to Satan. This is not to say that it's Satan's fault or that Ananias and Sapphira could say, the devil made me do it. We're not allowed to, to say that. Um, Even though we're tempted, God has given us the ability uh, to uh, resist Satan, so they couldn't do that. Um, But they gave in to temptation. They coveted, in a sense, the praise of Barnabas. They coveted the respect that Barnabas had been given. And they desired the praise of men above the praise of God. The praise of God would have been that they did the right thing. But instead of doing the right thing, they did what would give them gain. They didn't fear God or see him as holy. The reality is these are the same tactics, some of the same tactics that Satan uses against us today. I mean, how are we tempted to covet or desire the prestige or praise that other people are getting? This can happen to us in work. This can happen to us at school, maybe in your family, maybe, maybe on social media. Um, we covet, we want what other people have or the praise and the accolades that other people are getting. How are you tempted to desire the praise of men rather than of God? In cases where it's easier to go along with a crowd than to stand up for what's right and what's true? Or maybe it's in keeping up with the Joneses? Or not wanting to stand for justice? Or just because it's more convenient that we don't stand to do the right thing? How are we tempted not to fear God or to see Him as holy? Maybe it's in what we watch or what we listen to. Maybe it's in how we talk about others. We could ask a lot of these diagnostic questions to kind of peer into our hearts to discover what our motives are. But the reality is, and I don't want us to miss this big point. So in order to see it, turn with me, if you will, to Luke 18, verse 9. This is a familiar passage, Luke 18, 9, a parable. Jesus speaking to... His disciples also told this parable, verse 9. 
He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, and one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So what does this have to do with Acts 5? When we come to this story of Ananias and Sapphira, it is a warning. It's a warning to be on the lookout for people who would do things out of their own interest. It would be a warning to be on guard against hypocrites. But the big warning is not for us to be looking outward, but to be looking inward. Not to, don't be tempted to read this passage, to read this story, and think of other people before you think of yourself. The reality is we can and we are often led astray by Satan, or even our own hearts, to covet what Ananias and Sapphira were coveting. We can easily deceive ourselves and try and deceive others to look better, to appear more righteous, or to gain the praises of men. Where this story should take us is at least two places. One, humility, and the other is godly fear. Humility in that we pray like the tax collector, God have mercy on me, a sinner. And godly fear in the same way that we see this happening back in Acts 5. A great fear came upon the whole church and upon all those who heard of these things that we recognize God as holy and His holiness and our knowledge of His holiness inoculates us from sin in the sense that it, it, it works its way for us to resist temptation. I think that the idea that God is holy is something that isn't taught, unfortunately, in a lot of churches anymore. This fear that fell on the people was a godly, holy fear. It was a fear of God. It was a fear of His judgment, a fear of His wrath. And I think there's been, for for some time, uh, this movement within Christianity in the West to paint God in these broad strokes that God is love and God is merciful. These are not untrue. God is love. God is merciful. But God is also holy. He's also just. We don't lay on the the lens of his love and try and filter everything else out that we don't like because that wouldn't be loving. You've had these conversations with people where you call something a sin and they say, well, but God's loving. My God is a loving God. He wouldn't judge that. No. God has said who he is. He has made it clear what is true and what is right. And he is just in his judgment. And so he is worthy of our fear, our honor, our praise, and our obedience. And the reality is we really can't appreciate his love and his mercy and his grace unless we first understand his holiness, his wrath, his righteousness, and his justice. You see, it's because he is holy other, set apart, perfect and glorious, that it is amazing grace that we can even be known by him. It is because he is perfectly right in all that he does and executes precise and equitable justice that it is amazing grace 
that we can come into his presence. The work that Jesus has done to accomplish our redemption and adoption is amazing because you and I should be fairly judged like Ananias and Sapphira. We deserve to breathe our last breath because sin, our sin, is a capital offense against a holy God. And this is what makes our salvation so great, a salvation. God wasn't being mean or unfair in executing Ananias and Sapphira. He was being completely just. And it was actually a great mercy to the rest of the church and even to you and to me today to be given a gift of godly fear and to be reminded of this example. So let us work out our faith in fear and trembling, asking God to reveal our heart motives, to give us eyes to see our own motivation, to see what it is that moves our heart to do the things that we do, to think the thoughts that we do. Pray that God does this loving surgery that peels back the layers of our heart, exposing what's there and applying redemption to bring us to repentance so that you and I don't bring dishonor to the name of Christ. But let's also pray that God gives us this healthy fear because fear does inoculate us from sin. It, it, it moves us to resist sin, to realize that God is holy, and it, it's a healthy tool. And, of course, we know this, uh, even though the world teaches us that fear is a bad thing. I mean, nowadays, it seems like any fear is taught to be a bad thing. But remember in Proverbs 1, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Godly fear is a good thing. It's a good thing. And this story of Ananias and Sapphira should certainly teach us that. So we see God's judgment in this passage. The next thing that we're going to see is God's power. And it's the same power that's been on display in every sermon that we've looked at or every chapter that we've looked at in Acts. The power of God in healing and redeeming people from the fallenness of this world. And we see this... um, kind of expanded. Up to this point, it's been Peter, Peter and John. Now we see that God is actually working through all of the apostles. And not only is he healing and and restoring people physically, but more than ever, verse 14, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. The church is growing and growing incredibly. And there were some, though, who were reluctant. Verse 13 calls these people out. They, They were intrigued, they were interested, but they weren't ready to trust, to commit. And we'll always find those around us who are that way, um, who are reluctant. Verse 16 tells us now the growth was extending beyond the city of Jerusalem. So now it's moving beyond just the city, and we're starting to see it get into Judea, which is what Jesus promised and commanded to take the message to the uttermost parts of the world. The other thing that we see is the healing power of God through the apostles. Again, not just Peter here, but verse 12 says all the apostles. This is God giving affirming signs. These are my men. These are my people uh, to confirm their message, to, give the, to let people know that, that they speak with authority. And people were in awe to the point that people were trying to get the sick anywhere close to Peter. The text says that, that they wanted to, even if they could get him within his shadow. Now, this sounds like superstition to me, and I think it probably was. But it wasn't the people's belief or faith or superstition or lack of superstition that healed them any more than it was the apostles who healed them. This was the work of God. 
And God mercifully works even when we have bad theology or bad thinking, or, or in this case, the people were being superstitious. God still works. God still shows his power. He'll work in the way that he wants to work, and he'll move in the way that he wants to move, and he'll build his church in the way that he wants to build his church. I think the lesson for us is, is not to get off track when people do things that are, that are a little different or a little weird or whatever and spend too much time thinking about the way that they're doing things. Um, yeah, we need to be concerned and we need to make sure our theology is correct, but we also don't need to spend too much time being worried what other people are doing, knowing that, that Christ will build his church. I mean, if you think about all that was against the apostles at this point uh, and what we're about to see in this last part of the chapter, everything that was up against them, I mean, these guys should have been wiped out, and they're not. God is building his church. And so what we've seen in this text this morning, the judgment of God, his justice, and now we see his power in this text, his healing power, his power over all creation, now moves to give the disciples this great sense of conviction. And that's what we see in the last part of the chapter. It's the biggest part that we're looking at, 17 to 42, the bulk of the chapter And it's, again, the disciples getting some unwanted attention to be called before the Jewish leaders once again. They've been through this a couple times now. It's starting to get uh, a little too comfortable being called before the high priest. And we have to remember in verse, well, first of all, seeing what Luke has to say about their motivation in verse 17, that they're motivated by what? By jealousy. These leaders weren't protecting the purity of, you know, what we talk about, the purity of the church. They weren't protecting the purity of their theology. They weren't seeking to shepherd the flock and guard the flock and protect them from false teaching. They were simply jealous that the apostles and this new movement was growing at the rate at which it was growing. I mean, these men had a following, and we don't know what the numbers are exactly at this point, but we know that it's, it's probably pushing 10,000 because we've seen these other numbers given and some were only men and if you think women and children and all of this. Well, the population of Jerusalem at the time was only about 60,000. So, you know, if this was, it's well beyond 10%, pushing 20% probably of the population has come to faith. This is significant. And you can understand why the, these, these leaders would be concerned. But, but uh, Luke here tells us their motivation was jealousy. And because of their jealousy, verse 18, they decide to throw them into the public prison. This is different from the jail they've been in. This is a little more serious. This is the difference between the local lockup and the, you know, the, they're in with the real prisoners now. And this time it wasn't just Peter or Peter and John. This time it says all the apostles were put into this prison. And then in the, in the night, an angel comes and lets them out and tells them, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people the words of this life. And you think about it, it's pretty incredible. I mean, this was, this was a miracle, you know, what happened. Because 12 guys, if not more, were escorted out by an angel, but the door was locked and it was guarded. So this was not some sleight of hand or some, you know, rope down the back wall or something. This was clearly a miraculous work. And then it almost becomes comical. In verse 24, the high priest is told, and, uh, you know, the guys are gone. The the doors are locked, the guards are still standing there, but there's no one inside. And they're greatly perplexed. And then as they're discussing this and talking about what in the world does this mean, what is this going to come to, 
you can kind of imagine their frenzy. In, in verse 25, someone comes up and says, look, the guys that you locked up last night, they're, they're, not in, they're in the temple teaching again. And so the high priest sends the temple guard, and he goes, the captain goes with his men. But verse 26 tells us that he takes them not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. Again, you sense the anxiety that the leaders had. And then the high priest charges them again, <laughs> afraid to say or unwilling to say the name of Jesus. Uh, the, the, he refers in verse 28 to speaking in the, the, the name, this name. Um, and then he adds, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. The gospel spreading. And then he adds an accusation. You intend to bring this man's blood upon us. What? <laughs> you intend to meet, bring this man's blood? I mean, if this is not revisionist history, I don't know what is, right? This guy's trying to rewrite history. His blood was on him. And Peter's already explained this. We've seen this each week. In each chapter, we've seen chapter 2, Peter's sermon, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And then next, in Acts 3, Peter's preaching, but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And last week, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified. Peter's already told him the blood is on their hands. And it's even more interesting if we remember back to the actual trial of Jesus. In Matthew's account, verse 27 or chapter 27, now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas. The chief priest, that's this guy. <laughs> He's the one who led the persuasion for the people to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus crucified. To add, this is Matthew's wording, persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. This is what the high priest had done. And of course the governor, Pontius Pilate, said, what? I wash my hands. And literally brought a bowl out and washed his hands in front of the people. Because the blood wasn't on him, he didn't see a reason to crucify him. And all the people, after Pilate says, I'm innocent of this man's blood, all the people answered, his blood be upon us and on our children. If that doesn't give you chills down your spine, I don't know what will. What a damning comment to bring upon yourself. It was that comment that solidifies what exactly what the chief priest is saying here, that this blood is actually on his hands. Then the high priest released for them Barabbas, or Pontius Pilate rather, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Jesus' blood was on the hands of the high priest and these leaders of Israel. And now they're trying to rewrite history. But what does Peter do? He responds once again with a wise, Christ-centered, gospel-proclaiming sermon. We just get a snippet of it, but it's got the whole gospel packed into it. And says, first of all, we must obey God rather than men. We must obey God rather than men. <laughs> that we would be people of faith that live this way. That we would be so convicted because of God's judgment and justice and holiness and because of His power that we know He's at work and He will accomplish all that He's promised that we would say in all that we do, we must obey God rather than men. That that would be her response to Satan's temptation. <laughs> that that would be our response to the world. Then Peter gives the gospel very succinctly. Acts 5, 30 and 31. 
The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. That could be a whole sermon just in itself. But what is the response of the leaders? Is it conviction? Is it regret? Is it fear? Did they get a tingle down their spine realizing what has just happened? No, they're enraged and wanted to kill them, verse 33 says. So they're moved from jealousy now to rage, to hatred, wanting to exterminate the 12 apostles, wanting to stop this movement. And yet God's, God's church grows. It continues to grow. They want to kill them, and look at what happens. God uses one of their own to stand up and say, don't do it. Gamaliel. It's a story we're familiar with. And he says, basically, if this is of God, you can't stop it. And if it's not, it'll go away. And he gives two citations, two examples of stories, current events that had happened where people had either stood up claiming to be the Messiah or stood up to riot against the, the oppressive government, and they, they went away, disappeared. And, of course, God uses this in the sense that it is a wise response to one degree, it's also kind of a foolish way to live our lives because it's just fatalism. I mean, we don't live our lives this way, saying, well, you know, what will be will be, you know, que sera, sera. Uh, we just go and, and it's fatalism, right? We're just w- waiting for whatever to happen. We wouldn't stand up to injustice. We wouldn't stand up for truth if that's the way we lived our lives. But God even uses the foolish things of the world to show his wisdom. And he does this through Gamaliel. And the people are swayed, but not to the point of, protecting the disciples or the apostles completely. They're, they're, they're beaten. They're scourged. Most likely, this was the 39 lashes that was popular, the cat or nine tails that would have torn their flesh, that would have left, left them bruised and bloody. And yet, what was their response? In verse 41, rejoicing they left, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And they continued to preach and teach that Jesus is the promised Messiah, They were going to obey God rather than men. So, in this chapter, judgment, power, conviction, when we see God's judgment, His righteous wrath based on His holy nature, when we see His power, particularly the power of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation, we are moved to become men and women of conviction who will choose to obey God rather than men. And this conviction is not shame and guilt, because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This conviction is a magnificent freedom, an incredible liberty that comes about as a result of the amazing grace of God. That we know, we know the end of the story. We know He wins. We know we can live for Him because He is holy, because He is all-powerful. This will lead us to the conviction like the apostles who not only walk in obedience, but also counted it as joy to suffer. This is the gospel. This is your hope. This is my hope that apart from anything that we've done, that we've been completely saved from the wrath of God and have been shown love and mercy, being made children of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Let's pray. Father, I do pray that we would see your holiness and justice, that we would see your power and your glory, and that it would move in our hearts to convict us to walk not in shame and guilt, not in fear of man, but with a holy fear of you and great freedom, knowing that you are on your throne, 
that you are ruling, that the nations rage and plot, and it's all in vain, because you are sovereign. I pray that you would give us that sense of conviction and that sense of freedom, that we would live to obey you rather than man, and that we would live in a way that would be winsome to the lost who are around us, that you would draw people to yourself through the lives of each person in this, in this church. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.